0: Well, welcome to today's podcast, everyone. We are excited to have Craig Perrier on our episode today. Craig, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you, Samantha. It's great to be here. Great way to start off the school year.
0: Yes, I know. If you're listening to this um, around the time of publication, Craig and I have just basically finished our first weeks of school, so um, we are battered and tired but we are also extremely happy um to be back uh, in and around students uh again um so craig thank you so much for joining us um before we get started i always like to have everybody sort of just give us a little spiel about you know who you are and what you do and what's bringing you here today
1: oh that's great yeah um so I'm the high school curriculum specialist for uh, social studies in Fairfax County um, Public Schools, and I'm just starting my 11th year here. In this, so it's it's been a good a good experience. A lot of changes. Change might be a, a another theme for this podcast, right? But um, or social studies in general. And and yeah, I just moved down here from Massachusetts about um, 11 years ago. Like I said, and it's been it's been great making Virginia my. I don't know, second or third home, I guess. But uh, I love people I work with. I love uh, doing what we do and looking forward to a, another great 11 years in social studies and in Fairfax and beyond.
0: Awesome. Well, we are so glad that you're here and um, we're going to be talking about uh, deepening learning in the social studies today. And so I thought, you know, since we recently got new standards released, uh, it would be helpful to maybe kind of start there and look at like, what are the expectations for social studies uh, in social studies learning in the Commonwealth? So I'm curious, you know, from your perspective, uh, with the changes that have happened, what direction do you kind of see us going in? Um, how does the VDOE measure successful learning for social studies students? And um, how have the standards and expectations changed uh, in the last few years?
1: Yeah, that's- um, Big questions. <laughs> good, these are all great questions and I'm having a great flashback moment. Just the last week, we had our in-service um, you know, in-service day for, for K-12 social studies, we, we do it all together. And part of the, part of the opening presentation was indeed a, a let's look backwards and let's look, and let's look before we look forward. And we looked at the last uh, about 10 years of social studies, uh, both in Virginia and in Fairfax specifically. And the, we just narrated trends, um, narrated major major moments uh, in, um, since 2014, basically. Uh, and the changes have been, I, in my opinion, in a great direction. Um, here's some here's some trends we identified. Testing has decreased. This is for high school. I think it's also good for K-12. Testing has decreased in social studies, and the testing options have improved. So that's that's one great, er- great area. Um, by the decrease, you know, when I first came into this position, kids were taking or sitting for three multiple choice exams in high school, even if they didn't need to. Um, currently, uh, there's an option to sit for no exams. Right, you can do performance assessments, curriculum in, embedded in in your content area throughout the year, pass the course, and that's how you get your verified credit. So, testing, the testing culture and testing vision has changed. Um, there's another, you know, more recent trend I think, and I maybe maybe starting with 2015 and, and the additions of some standards, especially in world history, but um, certainly the last few years under Governor Northam where we started to look a little bit more about um, whose voice whose voices are present, whose are silent and whose are marginalized and how can we address that? Um, so that's been another another big one. And, and I guess a, a, a third, and maybe just, maybe just four total here, I'll stop on the on fourth one. The third one here is a change in Focusing uh, more on social science and history thinking skills. Now, this happened in 2015 with that, with that last standard in curriculum revision, and it's important to not create this false binary of skills versus content. It, it's really, it's really simple. I think it, you, we use content to develop skills. Right. Um, I work most directly with our department chairs, and I remember our conversations about this and. Saying, so, yeah, we know, we know, we can't go deep, and we know we can't use inquiry unless we, unless we teach stuff, right? Um, so that's 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 the relationship. I think we let's use content, but you don't have to know everything to talk about something, right? Um, knowing that uh, our thoughts and our information will change over time, but something, right? Some some depth of knowledge or some some background knowledge, and I guess you know maybe. maybe um, uh, the, the last, the last change that this is, this is kind of a prediction, right? We'll see what happens in this next change is, and the next revision is more of a focus on inquiry and more of a focus on conceptual learning. Um, I think those are the two big changes that are on the horizon, but, you know, it's still in draft and discussions are still happening. So we'll see, we'll see, you know, what, what, uh, what comes out of this year's um, curriculum revisions.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of positive changes and trends, you know, from my perspective, at least, I'm wondering if you could uh, just talk a little bit about what, what do you mean when you say conceptual, you know, like what, Mm -hmm. uh, what do you mean by that? I think we all kind of understand inquiry, but uh, conceptual.
1: Yeah. So I'm going to make some connections to the the title of this podcast too. The (laughs) the, the idea of depth, right? So, you know, two of the design elements, design principles that I'm going to you know, discuss today are are using a conceptual approach, right? And by and by conceptual approach, we we're getting into the realm of like disciplinary learning, but it, it need not be. So, if you think about social studies and and what you teach and and when you, maybe what you learned, there's some concepts that tend to fall into the social sciences, things like power and society, right? And and change over time is a, a disciplinary one, and periodization could be another. But things like race and gender, right? And class, these are all concepts which are not unit specific, right? They, they transcend the unit and they're not time specific and they're not, they're not spatial, spatially specific either. So we can use these concepts in any course essentially in any unit. Um, and the other advantage of, of using that is um, I don't need to have a full or even any background knowledge about a specific event In world history or U.S. history, but I can, but I I probably understand the concept of like power, right? And I can, I can talk to that. I can, I can bring something to the table, right? If I don't know, you know, anything about the American Revolution or Civil War before the start of the unit. And then I guess one, one more thing on this is like conceptual learning really is part of another design element for deeper learning, and that is connecting what you're learning in class to the contemporary world, right? So you know I work with world history one teachers and and often you know how, the question comes up how how am I going to relate ancient ancient content to contemporary times and and one of the answers not the only answer but one of the answers is to teach it conceptually right have a concept for that unit on Greece or Rome or Persia or you know um, and, and whatever the topic. And have that concept be framed in the use of essential question or a frame of an inquiry question and 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 make sure you tack on an aspect of connecting to today. So we have some examples of that, if I can share um, how we can use inquiry concepts and in connecting to the present.
0: Yeah, I love all of that. And maybe before we get into some of those specific examples, we can just sort of back up a little bit because I think, all of the things that you're sharing are about this like deepening learning and like depth by design. And I'm wondering how, if you could just sort of define that for us, like in simplistic terms, and then uh, talk about some of these principles that you've sort of um, started to lay out for us uh, one by one, and then we can kind of go into some examples of them.
1: Yeah, sure, that's that's a great transition. Um, the key word here, I think, is actually design. I think people f- focus on depth a lot, but I want to start with design first. So, this, this idea that um, teachers, educators, teachers, right, are empowered to design learning experiences, it's a very active, empowering, and, and uh, focuses on the agency of educators, right, to say, here's, here's my class. Here's my you know semester year quarter. What what can I design? What kind of learning experiences can I design? That's an intentional and explicit activity action. So it's not you know writing lesson plans seems like mechanical or something industrial. Like I'm just I'm just gonna maybe I, I need to pass this in. But if I'm designing learning experience, I think it it supposes a few other things. It, it supposes that I'm thinking about um, like. broad unit, unit to unit connections, um, probably some flexibility in that design of learning experiences. So you can design your learning experience for depth, right? You can design your learning experience for superficial learning. We're gonna uh, we're leaning towards designing for for deeper learning, right? Because deeper learning is typically usable outside of the classroom, right? It is Something that's going to be more engaging, Uh, it employs the constructivist approach to education, meaning that students can create their understanding, right, inform meaning, informed and informed meaning, right, not just anything goes. That's also a trap. People think, well, constructivist, anything goes here, right? No, Um, informed, informed meaning making is 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 key. There are, you know, potentially wrong answers right or wrong understandings of 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 things in the past. So deeper learning involves yeah constructivism connecting what you're learning outside of the classroom. I don't like to use in the real world because I believe the classroom and the, the educational experience is indeed reflective of and is part of a student's real world living So you should make those connections really explicit. Um, and it also involves um, using my own background, lived experiences, and, and current issues right, to, to teach. If I, if I often, I, I believe this, if we can't identify how what we're teaching connects to the now, the now of my life, the now of the world or a current issue, I don't know why, I'm not, I'm not sure why we should be teaching it. Um, we should be able to answer that question. Um, so we can design our lesson on ancient Greece and the American Civil War, on the Cold War um, to do this because, because I, I I believe that you know with working with teachers and working with students and colleagues that we've identified some design elements that empower teachers to do this.
0: I love all of that. I think, you know, some of this, I think, is what teachers are trying to do on a daily basis, but maybe don't have an explicit name for um, and don't have a sort of plan for how to really execute it in a formal or almost not perfected, because obviously we're, we can never be perfect um, in the classroom or anything like that. But, you know, we, I, I think, are working towards making our lesson plans more dynamic and, you know, making sure that everything that we're doing has sort of roots that extend beyond that day. And so I like this idea of, you know, this design, um, designing learning experiences being a way to sort of bring connective tissue to uh, the classroom and between topics, ideas and concepts and everything that the students are learning.
1: Yeah, I mean, we we have these moments, right, in our in our professional life that that you can think about and say, oh, that was a really like, like a light bulb went off, right, or it was a it was a game changer or something like this. And and regarding deeper learning, there's a few, but there's one that stands out regarding what I said earlier regarding like, designing an essential question or creating an essential question that's going to do all this, and it was. Yeah, multiple light bulbs must have gone off here. It was, we were working with teams from our high schools and we were working on designing, not even that, we weren't calling it deeper learning. We were designing performance assessments, right? So that shift away from multiple choice into performance assessments. And part of that was having a really good compelling question or essential question. And sure enough, the World One team, World One history team from one of our schools came up with this question that seemed to be perfect, <laughs> right? It was, a perfect, it was a perfect and simple way to say, we can do this with any unit we have. And the question went something like this. They, they were designing a performance assessment for the middle ages, right? The, uh, the medieval era and, and, and the teachers were also big on um, the UN sustainable development goals. So their question they designed was, how does learning about the middle ages impact your understanding of a U.N. sustainable development goal. Um, we've taken that, that template, that formula, and we've used it in our curriculum guides. We use it in, the, in our summer school, like you know, summer courses, but we ex- we've expanded it. So it sounds something like this. How does learning about X, whatever unit you're teaching, how does learning about, you know, the ones I mentioned, the American Revolution, um, ancient Rome, impact your understanding and we've expanded we've expanded the last part where students get to pick one of these so let me say it again how does learning about um, the European enlightenment impact your understanding of yourself your lived experience a contemporary issue a concept or a UN sustainable development goal we kept that one right as a, as a tribute to the original so students have, and, and if, if, a te- if a team or teacher uses that, they have choice within that question. But all the, all the things on the second part of the question, yourself, your lived experience, a concept, all of that, you know, goes beyond the classroom and you're using content in your class purposefully to engage with something that's
0: current. And I think that like you said, kind of, you know, at the beginning, it answers the question for students who may not necessarily have the same uh, interest in history or social studies that some of us do. It answers their question as well, why do I need to know this? You know, it makes the learning feel and tangible and real in a way that it That it doesn't sometimes, whenever you don't ask those deeper questions, you know. I think there is sort of a flatness to just like learning content for the sake of learning content, you know. Whereas if you're able to learn it and weave it together with something that is maybe more present to yourself or to the world around you, um, then that can actually make it kind of come alive in a way that it didn't before.
1: You know, Samantha, we just to go back to a few questions to make some connections from an earlier question and how VDOE has changed. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and focusing on this idea of essential questions. You know, when I first came to Virginia and into Fairfax, the curriculum guides had essential, they had they had a list of essential questions for every unit. But the questions were not essential questions. They were test-taking questions. They were questions like who was the president of the United States during the American Civil War, right? and um when they revision when the revisions came out in 2015 those were gone the essential questions were gone and there was a level of like we do often with, with changes of kind of re recalibrating or re educating the idea of an essential question because and i'm no offense to video we here but they had got it wrong they had labeled something an essential question which was not an essential question not by how it's defined. I think in the broader landscape of education, which is typically open-ended, right? It has it can have multiple answers. So I think the removal of that from the 2015, and I think the plan is to have maybe sample essential questions in the up, in the up the, the new revisions. Um, I think is a another kind of invitation to educators to say, yeah, have design an essential question or Have your students design an essential question that's relevant to them, right? And that's that's also empowering, but it's not gonna be mislabeled as a test-taking question, as an essential question.
0: (laughs) And I love that idea of having an essential question, whether it's per unit, per week, or per class period, you know, as a way to sort of drive the learning and make sure that you're always coming back to it I'm even thinking right now that in my class it would kind of be interesting activity to assign someone in class each day or each week to be the one keeping us on track of making sure we've answered that essential question like every single day you know and that's and a like, great idea yeah, yeah like <laughs> making sure that we're actually doing that because if we have left class without answering or connecting what we've studied to the essential question then we haven't done our job, you know, like for class that day. Okay, you mentioned that there are a few different design elements that you can incorporate into your class or into your unit. What are a couple of your favorite design elements that you think would be maybe key takeaways for teachers um, to start, like if they could only incorporate a couple of things into their classes here, like what what would you do?
1: Well, I mean, Samantha, they're all great. But, <laughs> right. I'll, I'll, I'll identify some that I think I'm gonna predict, or maybe I've already kind of framed as, you can't have deeper learning without these. How about that? And, and one, right out of the gate, one is deeper learning for that unit, they have a, a performance assessment has to be used, a, a, some way to demonstrate their learning, right? So we're not looking for deeper learning experiences to culminate in a multiple choice exam. Right. So that, so there, there's, a, and there's, you know, the teachers I work with and the teachers listening to this podcast, I'm sure know some summative, summative assessments can be super creative. They can come in different forms. I'm not specifying anything of like length or, or type. That's all in the teacher's design, right? What they want to, what they want to focus on and the level of choice. But the key part here is indeed there's a summative assessment. Um, maybe, maybe a few more here. Maybe maybe three more out of the sixteen. Um, there's another one that is key to deeper learning, and it, and it's framed as using structured conversations or discussion formats. All right, so you have a seven class period, you have a seven class unit, more more or less. Um, maybe one or maybe two of of those classes uses utilizes some kind of structured conversation during that class period and and we 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 highlighted in in the summer project with with teachers that not a discussion of like bouncing off teacher to student student back to teacher not that we're talking about a structured discussion that people probably know things like like harkness discussions right um there's we listed 26 options essentially. So there's ones called like "Give One, Get Only One." Only
0: 26. <laughs> yes. Yeah.
1: So something's got to resonate, right? <laughs> so, so there's there's and there a lot of these. These are ones we did not create. They're ones that are out there, right? They're they're known practices. But we took them all, put them together, and say, you know, for your for your lesson, pick at least one of these. Um, people might have heard of like philosophical chairs. Uh, the the fishbowl is a really popular one. A fishbowl discussion. Um, and maybe one more. There's one that's called um, a, a two-minute interview. Sometimes it's called like speed dating, but that's when you, you know you talk to a bunch of your classmates in a, in a format. So, so that's 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 another powerful one. Um, it's getting student voice in the classroom right intentionally, right? And that's that's really key for a constructivist approach and getting new ideas. So a third one here is a really disciplinary one, and it's the one I found that folks are not necessarily are not are least in tune to, and that's this idea of scale shifting. So, really quickly, scale shifting in a in a as a human practice we do all the time. Um, the example I typically refer to is if you ever watched like the State of the Union address or any kind of I don't know um, position where they're going to talk about the landscape of something. Uh, that person typically talks about something in general. Hey, the economy is going great. So you know, blah blah blah. Uh for example, you know, and identifies like an individual in the audience, right? So that person has just scale shifted from m- macro, right, and now is in a micro experience. So why is that important? Well, two beliefs are that the the macro, if you only use the macro level, you're missing this kind of hum- humanistic approach to studying history and social sciences. So there's gotta be some voice involved, right? And in the opposite, if you're only using the micro approach then you're missing this kind of broader understanding of large chunks of time or, or events. So designing the unit, so you have classes devoted to this macro level instruction and time to get voices from the past into that instruction is really important. Um, here's, here, was the, here was the really convincing point for the macro micro um, use in a class. And it, it was an anecdote I heard from a teacher who was teaching the Holocaust. And the observation was her students were really kind of like indifferent to the experience. And talking it through using this approach, we realized that she was just teaching it as a macro level, right? Here are the places, here are the big numbers. And there was no like human level. And she said when she started to incorporate um, survivors stories, you know images from museums right and, and set up structures that way uh, students ex, students reactions and students engagement with this historical topic changed right because she had used both this macro and micro level. I go so far as a point of saying yeah use use those words with your students so they know what's going on right because sometimes our textbooks don't do that or, you know, resources don't do that. It it can it can be confusing. So the last one here, I said four. Uh, the last one here is is not a disciplinary one. It's I think that's a good teaching one, and that is a design element for deeper learning where students have uh, at, they use accessible and varying resources. So accessible just simply like can I engage with this. Uh, is it at my is it at my lexile level reading level is it if it's you know if English isn't my first language can it speak to me can I can I translate it into my home language so that's really important and then varying meaning yes I can maybe choose I I we I, I remember learning from Chris Tavani someone we worked with at our district that even having one choice is better than than having no choice right so having two resources and students could pick one or the other maybe it's the text, maybe it's a video, maybe it's two types of text, whatever the case, right? But accessible and varying content resources is a nod to the varying pathways that students can take for, for learning. Any, anybody who wanted to be involved in this project, we wanted to make sure that their department chair and their assistant principal knew and supported it, right? Say, hey, this is happening this summer. This is fantastic. In the fall, we're gonna come back and this teacher is gonna be doing something that he or she is gonna share with your with your team, and with your department, do you support that, <laughs> right? And it, the unanimous was yes, right? It, um, yeah, that's, a, that's, that's fantastic, we support that. So the lesson here is that we should embark on this with a we mentality, right? Not as I'm the only person on the team doing this, everyone else does it, something else and, you know my kids are the luckiest ones because they have me as a teacher right that might be true but we want to spread that (laughs) we want to spread that that experience around so one of the challenges to overcome a challenge of maybe isolation is to communicate beforehand we want to try something out and we want to do this together um another challenge which i think people might invoke but i I'm going to use a phrase which i haven't heard a lot but i think it's um it's good to have that and that is the the current standards at least the current curriculum framework from virginia is really good at this at giving students sorry giving teachers the power to design deeper learning that i don't hear that a lot um it's 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 often, it's couched in the opening paragraph of the curriculum framework of the standards. And the sentence goes, we recognize, I'm paraphrasing here, we recognize that what you're seeing here in the standards is not the totality of what should be taught. And you, sh- and you should feel, I don't think they say empowered, but you should feel, you know, um, have the, the freedom to, you know, create learning in content that's related to your local context. Right, so that's, an, that's fantastic. That, that's a opening of the gates. It's not limiting to whatever is there. I have to teach that full stop. Um, so that challenge, if that's invoked, doesn't exist. It's not a real thing. It's, it's you, we, we, you, when someone, when a teacher asked me who wants us to do this, my answer was, well, the state of Virginia, our county, you know, um, our colleagues, our superintendent, and all that, we, we, this, this, this is supported, wants to be done. Um another challenge uh, might be the idea of I want to teach ex- what I've been doing and then add this on a- after. Um, that's that's going to be a huge challenge. It's going to be a huge time challenge and probably energy challenge, right? Because you're trying to, you're trying to say, I'm going I'm trying to merge these two learning models or instructional models that don't need to be merged, right? They, they need to be replaced or modified. Right. So um, having the performance assessment be the test, right? Be the assessment is it, it, it is sometimes a misunderstanding that oh, I'm going to teach, do this, and then I'm going to give that multiple choice exam at the end as well. No, you can have multiple choice questions, but that's not that should never be the totality of the summative assessment. I'm serious about that. It should never be. Uh, and the reason why I say that with, with such confidence. Uncertainty certainty is because of the vision and mission and um, uh, statements of, of teaching and learning and social studies education that come out of Virginia and where I work in Fairfax. And that is the profile of a graduate and the portrait of a graduate. Um, simply put, multiple choice exams don't measure those outcomes. So I take those as serious, right? That the, the, those, are, those are things we want for our students we want for democracy i argue if you're not teaching that way you're you're actually kind of like anti democracy you don't want you don't want your you don't want your students to be developing these skills for some reason um that's you know that might be that might be a little brusque for some people but think about it that's it's kind of true if i just want kids to regurgitate memorize stuff how are you how are you supporting a democracy in that
0: way i don't think you are and I totally agree with you, but I am going to play a devil's advocate for just a Please little bit. Please do. Okay, yeah. so I just know that I, I personally, am in complete agreement with you. Um, but what would you say to someone who might say, "Well, I teach an AP class." Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, we are quite literally teaching to a test, and maybe some of my students, you know, might not have as many financial resources to be able to go to college. And so these tests carry a lot of weight because they could potentially be getting college credit for doing these things. Um, So what would you say to someone like that who is kind of dealing with a multiple choice assessment like on the horizon and who says, I wanna incorporate these practices, but I'm also worried.
1: Question just came up uh, this past week after our in-service um, the, the, uh, department chair asked me how, you know, how do I respond to someone who says that, you know, 70% or more of my tests is multiple choice questions. I said, well, um, give me a second. Let me, let me come back with that. And I, and I, I looked at the AP exams, um, and, and their, and their assessment breakdown and only three of them are majority multiple choice questions. I don't know if people know that it's the, it's the econ ones and the psych one everything else is equal or more open-ended performance assessment assignments. So my response would be, yeah, teach that test. Uh, The majority of it's going to (laughs) be written based and performance assessment, prepare kids to do that, prepare kids to think, uh, because there's other parts of the curriculum you're talking about, which are, are, you know, are part of the exam. So in, in a, in a, um, I guess, moment of clarity of, of, no, of being informed about, you know, the current AP exams, um, the bulk of them are are actually majority um, performance assessment open-ended or equally, right,
0: 50-50. And I think, you know, in the performance assessments that you're working with, with AP exams, you know, the performance assessment is writing. And so I think, writing and incorporating more writing in the classroom, especially social studies classroom, is a way to, you know, use content as a vessel for skill development, right? Like, you know, it's a way to, you know, make sure that they're, you know, learning maybe the things that you feel or the VDOE feels that they need to be learning in that particular class, but they're able to do it in a way that builds skills that they're using not only right now, but in the future as well.
1: Part of the belief of this deeper learning is that uh, learning is a product of thinking. This is not my idea. This is, this is, this comes out of, um, I connected to Ron Richard and project zero out of Harvard, you might, you might know where I'm going with this regarding visible thinking routines. Um, So if we believe that, that you have to think in order to learn, right, and and how we're defining learning as a constructive, constructivist process, then using thinking routines, right, using visible thinking routines, as part of that learning experience is really important. we uh, we have started to employ these as part of our culture and our instructional culture. Um, we we designed them so they can be easily used. They're not in PDF form anymore. They're in Google um, Sheets and Google Slides and Google Docs. And they can be. We're happy to share it with you. It can be used by anybody really. Um, they're just in view. You can make a copy and they're yours. But the idea is 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 that this design element that if you want kids to learn you have to give a structure about how to think. And that's what the thinking routines do. Um, If you you don't use them, whoever's listening to this podcast, if you don't, I encourage you to do it. Your instructional repertoire will expand by galaxies. It'll it'll be a huge augmentation. Um, I remember my first, last comment about this, my first kind of really seeing these in play in a classroom. And it was probably October, November, and the teacher asked the students to um, get to use the routine, I think it was called Connect, Extend Challenge, or it might've been, I used to think, now I think. It was one of those two that I often get. And they knew exactly what was going on. Like they knew, like they had heard this before, right? They heard that, that when, I'm th- when I'm gonna engage with a, with a lesson or engage with content, part of that's gonna be some focused thinking. So I'm not just thinking, who knows what, right? But I'm, I'm, you're, being, you're being helped to teach, uh, you're, being, you're being taught necessarily like how to think, not what to think, but how to think, right? And there's different types of thinking. And it was great to see, you know, this familiarity with a thinking routine because it was a comfort level of an experience that results in deeper learning, right? So being comfortable with deeper learning as a teacher, as an outcome and with students, Maybe if you, if you don't even know you're doing it, but being comfortable with that experience that I'm going to have value in my thought and have agency and believe that what I think, what I think, emphasis on I, is valuable. And it's in, it's in the value is not in just me regurgitating what you've told me. That's a significant change.
0: It reminded me of like, when you're talking about the enlightenment too, like Descartes, we're thinking like, I think therefore I am. it's like, now I think <laughs> therefore I learn. Like if I can think I can learn, you know? And so if we're teaching students how to think for themselves, it empowers them to sort of drive their own learning. And I think that's how you create lifelong learners ultimately.
1: Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Uh, that's a great connection.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, So, Craig, is there anything that you would like to plug before uh, we sort of wrap up here? Any projects that you're working on that um, maybe we could uh, learn about, or any um, social media maybe where we could follow you and find you uh, on?
1: Sure. There's a, uh, when I was in grad school, I, I started this project called uh, uh, the Globalizing US History Project. Um, it's become a hobby. Hobby of sorts, so I uh, update it. Uh, it's been every month. The last couple months have it's not been updated, but if I can give you the link here for the show notes, um, it's a free resource and um, on how to how to globalize uh, the U.S. history survey. So um, it can be used for A.P.USH and Virginia U.S. history and I.B. History of the Americas or any any U.S. history course and it's really, It's been a really great project to say, let's bring in Ameri- non-American voices. Let's bring in American voices when they're not in the United States. Let's use a comparison, a comparative approach, and let's use a conceptual approach. So we can say that the U.S. is a nation among nations. It's not, it's not the U.S. and the world.
0: Very cool. And where can people find you? Uh, are you on any social media? Are you on Twitter?
1: I'm on Twitter at Craig Perrier. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. My use of it has gone down recently. Okay.
0: Well, maybe it'll go back up. You know, okay. <laughs> <like>. <laughs> sure. That'd be great. <laughs> okay. Well, very cool. Well, Craig, thank you so much for being on today's episode. We thank you. We really enjoyed having you. And maybe we will do a part two um, and kind of hear back from how some of the units went with these teachers.
1: That'd be fantastic. Absolutely. Okay.
0: Great. Well, thank you so much again for speaking with me today. And listeners, don't forget to follow the Virginia Council for the Social Studies on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Our handle is VA Social Studies, all one word. And I also just want to plug really quickly that we do have our uh, annual conference coming up March 24th and 25th. You can find out more information on that on the VCSS website. You can also follow me on Twitter at Sam underscore Futrell one. And if you like today's episode, subscribe and give us a five-star review as it helps others find our podcast. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time on Content Classroom.